I believe that uh, at this time, if you have young children who uh, are going to to the youth service or the youth church, I believe you can you can uh, dismiss them. If you don't want to, don't. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter eight, it says that. Uh, those that gathered to hear God's word were men, women, and all who could understand. And so uh, you as shepherds and you as, as leaders of your children and teachers of your children, if you, uh, if you uh, desire that they stay, please have them stay. Uh, let's begin before we uh, open the word of God. Let's pray uh, to the one who's the owner of that word. Father, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you, and as we've sung, all we want, all we want is you. And uh, as we now open your word, and as we uh, seek to understand what it is that you would teach us from your word this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. What we do not know, teach us. And what we do not have, give us. And what we are not, make us through the power of your word. In your Holy Spirit, in your name we pray, amen. We'll be in Titus. I told, uh, if many, many of you may have come to hear, uh, hear or see this dynamic young preacher that, that generally preaches and teaches here at Cross Point. Obviously, I'm not that man. But this is God's word, and so that's fairly irrelevant. Uh, because God's word is is what we're here to listen to and to and to think about and to reflect on. And God and the writer to the Hebrews uh, states that it is powerful, it is sharp, and it does have effect, and it has the effect that it's intended to have. So, uh, whether it's myself or or Ben McGraw delivering uh, a message from up here, uh, it is God's word that we focus on. Um, also, you may remember, if you, if you were here the last time that I had opportunity uh, to address the body in this way, uh, I had determined that uh, Titus chapter 2 was going to be my focus for the next few times, at least when I had this opportunity. I got a phone call about 9 o'clock yesterday evening, and Ben uh, was on the phone, and he said, I'm not feeling very well, I'm nauseous, I've been sick. And you need to be kind of, I guess this is a paraphrase, you need to be in the bullpen. Um, he said, I'll call you tomorrow morning. It may be a short-lived thing. I'll call you tomorrow morning uh, between 7 and 8 o'clock to let you know whether you're up or not. And this morning I got a phone call. And it was not Ben. It was his, his lovely wife, Christy. And she said three words, you're the man. So... <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm going to try to fill those, fill those shoes, uh, and again, with God's help and with the strength of his word, we'll muddle through Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'll read verses 11 through 15, and then we'll focus in on verse 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. 
Um, as a quick introduction and, and to catch us all up, we, uh, I was talking this morning uh, as, a, as I was actually first got here and uh, Scott said, you know, I have the notes from la- your last sermon. And I said, well, great, did you get the four points? <clears throat> and uh, he said, yes, I did write them down. And the first point that we went through was the salvation that grace provides. It's in there in, in verse 11. It says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And we said that there were a couple of things about that salvation. One, and primarily and preeminently, that salvation what came to earth to bring glory to God. You are who you are in Christ today to bring glory to God. That's why we meet here. That's why we worship. That's why we've just sung. That's why we pray. That's why we spend time here is to bring glory to God. That's also what we do when we walk from here to out there is to bring glory to God. That's our purpose. That's the purpose you were saved for. The second and not not any probably less important and equally affirmed in the word is that this salvation that appeared had to appear because of man's inescapable problem and that problem was that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we had to be quickened to life we had to be brought back alive by the power and grace of God um, it tells us in, in the Word that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in us. And that's the power that we're going to look at today in verse 12. Um, I was, it was, it's a funny thing. Uh, obviously, I'm kind of maybe an older guy in, in this group anyway. And um, I was teaching uh, a class several, several months ago. And uh, I was, I was uh, in intrigued to find out that uh, there's there's not necessarily a, a whole lot of reading at least reading of books and and periodicals and things like that that happens in these groups because you guys get your stuff off the computer you know it's the cnn stuff and the re- and and i was i was amazed at that a little bit because i am so old and we just always read all this stuff okay uh and so i, I was thinking you know there was this thing that I used to love to do, even when I was little, and some of you will, will say, yeah, that sounds like you, but uh, it, there was this, this periodical called the Reader's Digest. You guys heard of the Reader's Digest? <laughs> I, you know, and I don't even know, I think it still exists, but I don't know that anybody reads it anymore. Uh, but if you do read it, uh, and when I, even when I was younger, I used to love this one thing in the Reader's Digest, and it was called Enriching Your Word Power. Now, most of you are going, yeah, that sounds like him. Okay, but it was, it was usually 20 uh, uh, words. And if you got 18 to 20, you were doing really good. And if you got any less than that, you probably ought to go read the dictionary a little bit and, and, and learn some of these words. But the kind of word that you would often find, it would be a word like pedagogue. And the word pedagogue then would have four definitions beside it, like a Jewish children's church, a foot specialist, a teacher, a stationary bicycle. And you would be needing to, to decide which one of those is the, is the true definition of that word. Now, I'm not going to have anyone raise their hands or call out any answers or anything. We wouldn't want to, A, embarrass anybody or anything. But, but uh, uh, that's because I know that you know that the word pedagogue actually means teacher. 
And this, and this, in older days, teachers were known as pedagogues, and actually teaching was pedagogy. Well, where would we get a word like that? Where would a word like that come from? Well, it comes from the same root as the Greek, the Greek word. It comes from this Greek word. That's the second word in, chap, in chapter 2, verse 12, teaches. And it is paduo, and it means to train by discipline as one would a child. Now, I'm, I have, my, my schooling is in various Various things, chemistry and biology mostly, but I have taken a lot of math. And we understand that in, in learning math, you don't just jump straight to calculus. At least most people don't just jump straight to calculus. You start with the adds and subtracts. And then, if you can handle it, you graduate to the multiplies and divides. Okay, and then eventually... You may learn algebra, which I'm relearning algebra because my daughter's in algebra and it's a strong throwback and it's a lot of work, but that's a, a beside. But the truth that's conveyed here is that in, after the work of salvation, grace doesn't stop. After liberation from sin, it begins a training course. And it does that training with wisdom, with sensitivity, and with purpose and direction. And the training course of grace is a class from which we never graduate. No Christian ever arrives at the end and gets the diploma from the classroom of grace while we're here on earth. It's a process that goes on throughout our lives and a life spent in the classroom of grace will be evident from the lifestyle of those who are taking the course. Okay, let me say that again. The training course of grace is a class from which we never graduate. It is a process that goes on throughout our lives and life spent in the classroom of grace will be evident from the lifestyle of those who are taking the course. In simple, simple, simpler terms maybe, or in shorter words, it should be noticeable that grace has invaded our lives. There should be a difference. What are the evidences of being under the instruction of grace? Well, Paul, in, in his writing here, says... It teaches us to, first of all, in the negative, to say what? No. It teaches us to say no. It's this word, by the way, is the same word that's in, in chapter 1 and verse 16. And if you look back at chapter 1 and look at verse 16, you see it says, They claimed to know God. This is talking about people... Uh, in, within the church who are, who are teaching wrong things and, and, and it says that they claim to know God but by their actions they deny Him. That's the word. The word translated there, deny. Also in Acts 3.13, you can look this up if you'd like to. This is Peter after, after uh, Pentecost and Peter after he's healed the cripple at the beautiful gate and the people have come to him and, and, and he looks at them and he says, 
why are you why are you marveling that this that this man is is healed and why do you look at us as if it's something that we did and he speaks these words he says he says this Jesus whom who 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 was among you you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate the word disowned is the same word used here no Acts 7.35 also, as Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, and he says, this same Moses, Acts, 30, Acts 7, verse 35, I'm sorry, says, this is the same Moses whom you rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. If you want to look some of that up, that's in Numbers 13. But the word disowned is the same word. So what does this mean? The work of grace causes a man, woman, young person to give up, to deny, to disown, to reject that which is displeasing to God. Grace does that. And let me say this. By the affirmation of God's word, there is no work of grace in the life of a person without that. It is impossible to say that we have discovered God's grace in all its truth and continue to live in complete denial of that which is the evidence of those who are in the classroom of grace. We cannot look the same as the world. Not here, not out there, not in any aspect. There must be difference. If grace has not accomplished this in a life, if grace has not invaded a life, then when you hear things like this, when you hear what I'm saying, you will go out of here under the heaviest burden anyone could imagine. Because you'll go out of here thinking that you have to accomplish this somehow on your own. That your difference should be external and you'll only have an external difference. What grace does is it transforms us and makes us able and teaches us from the inside out how to say no. So, when we, when we think about the first two verses of Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, when we think about that, we see that the, the, the process starts decisively. Salvation happens. We become realize, we begin to realize and we, and we become an understanding of what it is that God has done in our lives in transforming us and translating us from darkness to light, from death to life. But that's not the stop. That's not the end of it. And so much of the time, we focus so strongly on just that one thing. We focus so heavily on that point in time and I know that Ben said it before, it is not, he uses the word terminal event. Salvation is not a terminal event. It doesn't stop, it doesn't have a terminus at the point that it begins because it is ongoing through our entire lives. And it is grace that does this. And there is no work of grace without that transformation. James speaks about it in James chapter 2 when he talks about this thing called a false faith. When he says, men can profess to have faith, 
But if the actions are not there, and specifically those actions which are also speak, spoken about in Matthew 25 by Christ himself, when he says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and the separation, the process of separation, will, a lot of the determination will be when you ministered to those in need he said when i was hungry you gave me food when i was needed shelter you gave me a place to stay when i needed clothing you gave me clothing and their response was when did we ever see you like that lord and he said when you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine you've done it to me james is talking about the same thing we cannot walk through this life without evidence of being in the classroom of grace. And if we are. James asks a rhetorical question. At the end of chapter 2 of James. He says can that faith save? And the answer is no. Because the evidence of saving faith. Is growth by the power of God through grace. As he teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And worldly passions. Now, take a little breather. That's pretty heavy. Okay? And as a little bit of a, uh, maybe what, what, I, what I'm calling here spiritual relief. You know, when you're, when you're in a really tense book or a really tense movie, they have this thing that they throw in there sometimes called comic relief, where you have a little light spot. This is not, not, I'm not saying make light of this, but let me give you one word, and that word is relax. Relax. Do you wake up every morning and psych yourself up to breathe? Do you wake up every day and by some decision-making process decide that you're going to inhale? Do you? No, you don't. What makes that happen? God makes that happen. God sustains your physical life. Well, how do we breathe in the spiritual way? How do we breathe as Christians? Because God sustains our lives spiritually. It is God who does that. We breathe because God sustains our lives. We're not perfect. We're not going to be until we get to heaven. All our desires have not been conformed to His will. We come from something. We're going to something. But we're in the middle. And it's difficult. And it's work. And it's full of challenges. But what takes us from here to there is God's grace. So, that's my relax. Okay? So what are we supposed to say no to? Well, the first word used there is ungodliness. And Paul uses some interesting, uh, interesting to me anyway, uh, Greek builds here when he he uses this thing it's a it's a double object that he uses and he's effectively giving us a definition of ungodliness when he when he says worldly passions this is not ungodliness and worldly passions two different things okay this is ungodliness which is defined by and as worldly passions okay ungodliness is all that is the rejection of reverence. It is, for, for an old word, impiety. It is a lack of fear of God. Okay? It is characterized by 
um, a, a disdain for things that are of the nature of God. His righteousness, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his justice. That's what ungodliness is. Worldliness, uh, it comes from a Greek word, kosmikos, and some of you will say, ah, that sounds something familiar. It sounds like, co- it's actually the, the same root as cosmos. Okay, and we know that cosmos it means this sphere or this world. These are desires that are, that are connected with this life alone. And they have to do with this world. Or our relative time, space, area. Where we are right now. Desire, they're desires that seek satisfaction in the here and now. And seek to introduce us to the lie that we can be perfectly happy and perfectly at peace. Without the blessing and benefits of God's grace. The word used here actually means strong and sinful desires. And if you look forward just a little bit in chapter 3, in verse 3 it says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another. That's the result of pursuit of these type of desires. And it says, we all were there. And it's past tense. Again, let me emphasize this. There must be change. There must be, as, as, some, as I heard a pastor say uh, many, many years ago now, there must be roots and fruits. Okay? Must be. Um, so how are we supposed to respond to these, this ungodliness? When it comes our way. When we, when we have opportunity to pursue worldly passions and ungodliness. It's really pretty simple. In 2 Timothy 2.22 it says flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So what's the, what's the antidote? Flee. Run away. Alright. Run away. Now, this is, this is not a, 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 would not be a common thing in, in our world today. That would not be the direction that you would be given by most people to run away from these things. The evil desires of youth have been suggested to be three things, passion, pleasure, and possessions. And we are not to be casual saying, well, I have the Holy Spirit in my life and I'm a member of Crosspoint and I don't really have to worry about these things because I'm this, because I'm that. Anything, Paul says, do not be naive. Anything that calls you into the dimension of life that would pull you into these ways, you're to run away from it. Don't open the door. Don't subscribe. Don't look, don't watch, don't tune in, don't consider it. Don't let it even get a toehold. Run. Now, again, that is not uh, something that you would commonly hear. People will say, oh no, that's a very naive way of thinking of things. After all, uh, can't we do all these things and experience all these things and enjoy all these things? After all, we're free in Christ. It is, it is for freedom that he has set you free. That's in the Bible. What kind of freedom are we allowed to enjoy in Christ? We're free from sin. 
We're also free to be slaves. We're free to be enslaved to Christ. Paul, in, in many of his openings to writings in, in the epistles to the churches, said a bondservant. He called himself a bondservant. He actually called himself a galley slave. We're free to be enslaved to Christ. We're free to run. We're free to be different. That's what we're free to do. Paul, with all of his understanding, introduces Timothy to, with all of his grasp of God's goodness, he tells him this simple directive. Get out of there. Run and get on your way. Uh, and, and he's talking about things that, that uh, would be referring to inordinate, inordinate and misplaced sexual desire, which is all over our nation. From the, from the prime time to the late night, to the, to the billboard, uh, to the internet, to any, any mode of, of information exchange that you want to look at. And the drive is, I, I was, I'm, amazed, I'm amazed over and over again at, at commercials that, that they can take a, a completely innocuous thing like milk. Milk. And turn it into something sexual. I'm telling you, our world sells by that. And we are to be different. We're to be away from that, to run from those things. He's also referring to the abusing of our bodies with anything, with alcohol and drugs and all the things that would take us under their control. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the instruction that the Word gives. We are to be different from the world. The world would call us to indulge in all these things and experience all these things. He's referring to the preoccupation with things which in a materialistic society would call us away after them. Paul's referring to the power by, by which we control one another. The, not, not necessarily the authority, but the power, the usurping of power. And, he's te- and the grace of God, when it comes to liberate, it liberates us from these things and it teaches us to say no to them. In 1 John chapter 2, John says the Spirit of God works in our lives so that we can be turned away from three things. Turn with me there to 1 John. I was talking to Scott earlier uh, this morning also, and he said that uh, th- th- these, these portions of the book of 1 John and especially 1 John chapter 3 which we're not going to look at this morning but you can look at for your homework are some of the most fear instilling words in the Bible and here we begin starting in verse uh, 15 it says do not love the world or anything in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him for everything in the world listen to these three things the cravings of sinful man the lust of his eyes And the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Now think about this. The radical change brought about by grace in the life of an individual is so transforming, must be so transforming, that it changes once and for all, all of our desires after those things 
It doesn't eradicate it. We're not made sinless. But it breaks the power of that dimension in our lives. It's something that we can never do for ourselves. It's something that we can't find simply by being external and embracing a a, a group of of actions one after another. There is no checkbox to sanctification. There are not these three things to do and these four things to not do. And that's why this paiduo, this pedagogue of grace, teaches us step by step from point here to point here. And we never graduate and we're never finished, but we're continuously being conformed to the image of Christ through this process. Something that we cannot do by ourselves, but it's completely the result of God's grace. Now when we take all those things away, passions, pleasures, possessions, misplaced sexual desire, Uh, abusive substances, uh, material things, control and power. What else do we have? The world's just about done at that point, right? You can't have a talk show. You got no subject. Uh, You can't have very many of the things that are on TV. Desperate housewives are not nearly as desperate at that point, are they? Because these things are gone. And, and this shuts down all the television, all, virtually all the television in prime time in America. Our culture is struck dumb. And the radical change brought about by Jesus is to do this in the lives of, his, of, of those chosen by God as his children. That is the result of this salvation and this sanctification by grace. What a silliness that we who have been changed so radically should, should, should get as close as we can get to those things and expose ourselves to that. When the world says, would say to us, oh, it's not so bad. Oh, these things are, 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 are not so damaging. What has it been has been saying about sin? You remember? Sin is that corrosive. Sin is that, here's a good word, pervasive. That word pervasive would be the same thing as you think of when you think of the passage when Christ said, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. There's no part of our lives that sin will not invade if given an opportunity. And so the statement here and the teaching here by grace is don't give it the opportunity. That's what grace instructs us to do. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And let us not miss uh, this point of emphasis that runs through All of this, that the repudiation, the pushing aside, the denying of these things is due wholly to the grace of God and exclusively to the grace of God. It is God's grace that liberates and stirs our hearts to long for other things. And this brings us now, then, to the instruction that Paul gives on a positive note. He says we're supposed to say yes to some things. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to say yes to what? Before we jump into that let's look at just a little bit ahead uh 
in, in, this, in this passage. And I want us to look at the time frame that we're talking about. He uses this, this word. He says we're supposed to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What Paul is dealing with is here and now. It is, it, it, it is, Christianity is about now, about today. It's about your husbands, it's about your wives, it's about your girlfriends. Here today, this very minute. It's about our relationships to one another and to God in grace right now. Why this emphasis? Well, Paul probably recognized as, as that there are those in the, and that there were those in his time, there are those now, who would be very preoccupied with verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And looking forward to that does not preclude us living the Christian life now. There is no, there is no, no, uh, I wrote this down, uh, it's kind of, was interesting to me, is, uh, I just thought of it somehow. It is entirely possible to have a paralyzing preoccupation with, pros with posterity. Okay, and that's like, okay, there's all those words again. It is very easy for us in looking ahead to the coming of Christ and our time in glory to sit on our laurels and wait for it. And that is not the call here. Do not miss the point of emphasis that runs through these things. As we look at this, and, and, and it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. It doesn't say the new will come. It says the new has come. It's here. And we're made new now. And we're made new for a reason now because we live here and now. And that's where the difference has to be seen. So in this present age is very, is very important. The relation, in relate, three things. In relationship to ourselves, grace works to bring about self-control. Paul to Titus had quite a bit to say about self-control. And I think I said something about it the last time that I, that I had, had opportunity. But I'll take it every time. Uh, in Titus chapter 2 as he's giving instruction to young men there's only one instruction given control yourselves okay self-control is quite important that all of us have self-control but especially gentlemen control yourselves young men have self-control and I told you about the little thing I have in the front of my Bible. It's a little poem. It says, One ship goes east, the other west, with the selfsame wind that blows. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that determines the way it goes. So I'm saying set your sails. And that's what this is saying to us. In relationships to ourselves, grace works to bring about self-control. And then think about with me. And I, don't, I, don't, I looked up the stats on this. But think about how many people go to session after session with counselors believing that they'll be liberated from habitual behavior by those, by those psychological sessions. I think the, the, the last I looked in 2007, the, the estimated number, amount of money spent on uh, uh, psychological counseling external to doctor prescribed was $375 billion in the United States alone. The grace of God is ultimately, ultimately what liberates us and allows us self-control. 
and all the self-control we will ever need and all the self-control we could ever desire is given to us as a result of God's grace. That's what Scripture says. God's grace is what teaches us to be self-controlled. Now, if all grace did was put the demand before us to be self-controlled, but didn't provide the power to uphold that demand, that would be a tyranny. Because there would be no way for us to be self-controlled in and of ourselves. We can't externally generate it. We can't, like I said before, we can't check off enough boxes here or enough yeses and nos. There is no balanced scale here that we can, that we can find that will, that will bring this about. And, and that's why many of us, or that's the way many of us live our lives. We walk out of places like this and sermons like this and teachings like this with our Bibles saying, I understand this is what I'm supposed to be, but inside we're saying, I don't know how. I can't do it. I can't be it. Well, what is it that liberates from that? Grace. It's the grace of God. That's what allows us not only to, to know what to say yes to, but to actually be able to do it. That's what allows us to understand that we need to be self-controlled and then allows us to be self-controlled is God's grace. And, in, and then in relationship to our neighbors, grace works to bring about uprightness or righteousness. It's a life that's noticed for integrity, fairness, and honesty. It's all that makes us suitable members of our society. And in relationship to God, it says self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. These are lives marked by devotion, piety, reverence, and respect. Which is exactly the opposite of what the no ungodliness is. It teaches us not only to say no to ungodliness, but to say yes to seeking after God. But to say, and to say yes to pursuing godliness. To say yes to righteousness before God. It teaches us all these things. Now, this is a, this is a little bit of a hard statement, but I, I, I heard this little, little quote. Uh, it says, they're, they're, the world would say that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use. In a lot of cases. But my, my, my question to you would be, have you met very many of those? Have you been in the company of very many heavenly minded Christians? Lately? In most cases... The problem with the Christian church is just the reverse. We've become so earthly minded that we're no heavenly use. And the transformation that grace performs is the transformation in the here and now. That's the emphasis. If you want to take away one thing, anything, from what's been said today, as feeble as, as it has been, that's the takeaway. That the transformation must 
be evident in the here and now. If we are no different in our homes, in our workplaces, in the supermarket, as we drive down the road, then we're no different at all. And the, the calling on our lives as Christians is to live exceptional lives. Exceptional. Not fantastic. Not happy. We're supposed to be an ex- the exception. We're supposed to be different. And if the difference is not evident, then there is no difference at all. So the call on our lives from Titus chapter 2 verse 12 is to say no to that which displeases God and to say yes to pursuit of self-control uprightness in relationship to one another and godliness in relationship to our, to our reverence and respect for the one who sent the salvation that appears to all men in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that uh, in, in uh, addressing your word today, that uh, we've been able to see and that you've taken your Holy Spirit and uh, interjected into our hearts the, the understanding that you would have us take away from what you teach us. Father, I pray that you would now, as we continue to worship you, that you, uh, that there would be a difference in our lives. That we wouldn't go out of here and uh, uh, easily assimilate into the things of the world and the pursuits of the world and the and the and the the preoccupations of the world but that we would be exceptional not exceptional uh, like like peter said not not because of something that we've done or not because of something in us or not something miraculous that uh, that 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 we can claim for our own but that the exception and the exceptional nature of our lives would be evident because grace is at work in our lives. Father, we thank you that even though we don't ever graduate from that classroom and we're never made perfect here on the earth, that because you continually love us and you continually teach us, that we can know that day by day, glory unto glory, you are conforming us to the image of your Son. And that at one time we will stand before you righteous because of the blood of Christ. And that as we, as we go through this classroom and as we're taught by grace, I pray that we would not keep those teachings necessarily just to ourselves, but that we would look at one another and we would share with one another what we're being taught by grace. I pray that as iron sharpens iron, so we would sharpen one another. We would learn to grow in grace together. I thank you for the time that you've spent with us here. Continue to be with us now as we worship you in song and in, in, in our giving. Father, because these are all acts of worship and you are more than worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.